The reading is from 2 Samuel 22, verses 1 to 20, and chapter 23, verses 8 to 17. David sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge, and my saviour. From violent men you save me. I call to the Lord, who is worthy of praise, and I am saved from my enemies. The waves of death swirled about me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave called around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I called out to my God. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came to his ears. The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the heavens shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, bolts of lightning blazed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot arrows and scattered the enemies, bolts of lightning, and routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed and the foundations of the earth laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of breath from his nostrils. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. And continue from chapter 23, verse 8, just over the page. These are the names of David's mighty men. Josheb Bashabeth, a Tachemonite, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai the Ahahite. As one of the three mighty men, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pas Damim for battle. Then the men of Israel retreated, but he stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip, one, strip, strip the dead. Next to him was Shammah, son of Agi, the Hararite. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. During harvest time, three of the thirty chief men came down to David at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty men broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. 
Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of the three mighty men. This is God's word. Tracy, thank you. Well done with some the names there. Magnificent. Well done, Joshua Bashabath, raising his spear against 800 men. Magnificent. Magnificent. Let's pray as we look at this section together. The Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. Our Father, we pray this morning that you would so persuade us that that is true and worthy of the greatest delight of our hearts, to have you as our rock and our saviour. Would you persuade us afresh of the wonder of that truth so we would give our lives in service to you this day and beyond. Amen. Now, I don't know if many of you will uh, sit and watch the Oscars tonight. It's sort of dangerous TV, isn't it? You, you think, oh, what's the, oh, I'll just watch 10 minutes of this now, nah, and you watch to the end. It's slightly addictive, uh, that sort of nature of TV. I guess most of it is the acceptance speeches. You kind of want to know who wins. But the speeches are where the fun is at. I mean, some are profound, uh, some are moving, and some are odd. And, uh, and perhaps those are the ones we enjoy most of all. You know, when the people who get to the front and... <laughs> Uh, the tears and everything uh, comes out, and uh, they come out with some uh, slightly bizarre. I mean, uh, some of my favourite, 98, uh, Kim Basinger. I just want to thank everybody I've ever met in my life for this award, which is kind of her to share that with the taxi drivers she'd used 20 years ago or something, and uh, or Catherine Zeta-Jones for Chicago. I really want to thank my unborn baby, not conceived when she performed in the role. So, uh, you know, people, you just, I think it's the emotion. People come out with some strange things. Of course, some will thank God. It's like culturally acceptable to do that, I think. Uh, in Hollywood, you could thank God in a broad sense. Some people seem to mean it. I, I don't know. I can't judge people's hearts. But do you remember the very excitable, uh, when um, uh, he got his award for Jerry Maguire, Cuba Gooding Jr.? It was one of the most more famous ones because he came on stage and just bounced around and was wildly... He was so excited that he got a standing ovation. It was slightly odd. But uh, he included in his uh, breathless speech, Thank you, Father God, for putting me through what you've put me through and yet bringing me here today. He seems to be very genuine about that. Now, some of you may go on to win Oscars, and I can say I knew you, and that would be wonderful. But <laughs> I would suggest not many here are likely to, uh, to be standing up and getting one of those little statuettes. But what if you received the equivalent in your field? You were designated by whoever it would be. You were designated as the the entrepreneur of the year, the housewife of the year, the lawyer of the year, internationally. That would be what you'd stand up and say. And you'd get to the stage, and oh, <laughs> you'd be overwhelmed with your tears, and you'd get your little whatever it would be, uh, I don't know, computer if you're a lawyer, Hoover if you're a house, whatever it would be, or you'd get whatever, whatever your little statuette would be, and... Um, uh, what would you say? Would you have the courage to stand up and say, actually, I want to thank God for this. He's given me all that I have, and I would have achieved none of it without him. Would you be able to say that in front of your peers? Can you imagine saying that just in front of your own office? And 
Forgive me for asking, but would you mean it? I mean, some of us might have the courage to remember that that would be an appropriate thing to say. But would we be able to genuinely say from the bottom of our hearts, Lord, everything I have, you've given to me, my opportunities, my abilities. And this is, I want to praise you for this award. Or somewhere secretly in our heads are we saying, God, thank you, you've been very kind, but I've been pretty good as well, you know. I've worked hard for this. So, uh, you know, well done God, but well done me. Uh, they say, what would you do? We come to the end of this book, two books, one and two Samuel. If you remember really, it's one book just written on two scrolls because the scrolls weren't long enough when it was originally written, but it's one book. And actually, off and on, we've been looking at it since the autumn of 2009, uh, remember? Uh, all the way back to the beginning. Well, these last four chapters conclude the whole of 1 and 2 Samuel together. And really the whole point of them is, don't look at David, look at God. It is the Lord who brings victory. It is the Lord who has given everything to David and to Israel. That's the main purpose of these last four chapters, 21 to 24. They're not chronological. So if you've been with us and followed, we've, we've said that uh, from uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9 to 2 Samuel chapter 20 is really, in one sense, the fall of David. God's grace is triumphant, but David falls in his sin with Bathsheba. And then you get the civil war and the death of his sons that spiral out of that. And chapter 20, the civil war ends. And then you get these last four chapters. They don't follow on. They go all the way back in time. They're sort of selected highlights from David's past. And they're put all together in such a way to make the point the Lord gives the victory. Very briefly, let let me just show you the structure of the the four chapters. It goes a bit like this. It's a chiasm or a sandwich structure with the emphasis on the middle. So at the beginning of chapter 21, the Lord's anger over Israel, which David placates. And at chapter 24, again, the same issue. The Lord is angry and judges Israel, but David placates the Lord's anger. Then uh, B... You get a section in chapter 21 on David's heroic fighting men. And then uh, we just had read in chapter 23, David's heroic fighting men. And in the center, you get these two, well, one's a psalm and one's David's last official words as king. So you get see David's psalm of praise for the Lord's work in the past. And then chapter 23, David's last official words as king. They trust in the Lord's work in the future. So just the overall structure of these last four chapters is, is saying, look at what the Lord has done. And we'll pick up on a couple of those uh, passages in a bit more detail. Two representative sections we're looking at this morning. First, that is part of the uh, the psalm in the middle, chapter 22. We're just going to look at 1 to 20. And we'll see there the history that sees the Lord's work. And then we'll look at the fighting men, the heroism that sees the Lord's value. But first then, chapter 22 the history that sees the Lord's work. Now then, the whole of 22 is a psalm. It uh, gets copied and pasted later on into the book of Psalms. It's Psalm 18. It's essentially the same thing repeated. It's a psalm here. And we're told when David wrote it in uh, chapter 22, verse 1. David sang to the Lord the words of this song, when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So it's a reference back, it seems, to chapter 5 of 2 Samuel where David is finally proclaimed king. 
Ten years of his life, he's been on, he'd been on the run. Ten years, Saul had been trying to kill him. Ten years, there'd been civil war in the land. It comes to an end, and David gives thanks and praises the Lord. You would do. You would give thanks. Ten years, your life's been under threat, and then finally you become the king, and everything is well. You'd want to give thanks. And so what chapter 22 is, is really David's reflection on, well, at least ten years of his life. It's not technically true, or is it? I mean, we'll read in detail, but most of what you get in chapter 22 didn't obviously happen. If you read through 1 and 2 Samuel. So this is David poetically recording what happened, but from God's perspective. David looks back on his life, not just at the literal events that took place, but he looks back on his life and says, this is what God was doing that no one else could really see. So it's history recorded with the eyes of faith. Let me show you what I mean, verses 7 to 12 in particular here. Uh, Verse 7, David says, In my distress I called to the Lord, I called out to God from his temple, he heard my voice, my cry came to his ears. So David is on the run and he calls out to God. And what does God, what happened? Verse 8. The earth trembled and quaked, the foundations of the heavens shook, they trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils, consuming fire came from his mouth, burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down, dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew, he soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. Now, If you remember anything we've looked at in 1 and 2 Samuel, anyone remember that happening? God saying, come here angel, I'm going to mount on you and ride down and breathe like a dragon. Literally happened. I think the events probably David's describing is Saul trying to kill him. I mean, back in 1 Samuel 19, David, uh, sorry, Saul picks up a spear and throws it at David and he misses. Then he sends assassins to try and kill David, but David's wife warns him, so he jumps out the window and escapes. But there's no God riding on an angel, breathing fire and smoke. I mean, what's happened to David's memory? It's not just one too many to drink when he's writing this? No. No, very deliberately, what he's doing here is using the language of God coming to earth. It's Mount Sinai language, if you can remember the story of God coming down and giving the Ten Commandments to Moses in Mount Sinai. The scholars call a theophany language. When God comes down to earth, there is always fire and smoke and a trembling earth. That's what happened on Mount Sinai. The mountain trembled, everyone was terrified. So when David writes this, He's not saying the Lord literally came down in fire and smoke when he was on the run from Saul. David's point is, the Lord rescued me. Now everyone else may just have seen Saul throwing a spear and Saul sending assassins, but I, David, I know what was going on there. God was involved and he rescued me. And I'm using poetic, dramatic language. David looks back at his own personal history and says, God was at work. 
The Lord was dramatically at work in my life. It may not have been fireworks in the sky, but the Lord was dramatically at work in my life to rescue me. He made sure the spear missed. He made sure I escaped out of the window. The assassins didn't get me. He, that was God's work. The Lord protected me. Now, two little implications of this. Fairly obvious, I think. First, give thanks. That's what David is doing. Now, if you have eyes of faith like David, you give thanks when things go well. So even this morning, as a church, we could happily and rightly say it's tremendous that at the moment we as a church are providing our budget. That's great. But we must also say the Lord has provided for us. He is the primary agent and we're the secondary ones. The Lord has provided. If you like, chapter 22, if you like your poetry, you could write it in such a way. The Lord has come down upon the back of an angel and burst open treasuries of gold beneath Christchurch Mayfair, or you write something better than that, if you wished. But that's essentially doing what David is doing here. He's recognizing and giving thanks that the Lord has provided for him in your own life. You can rightly and appropriately say, I've worked hard for my success in my job. You know, we've, we've put a lot of work in to have our happy, um, delightful children growing up as they are. You know, I've put in the hours to get to the place I am today. You could say all those things, but you must also say as well, the Lord has provided for me. We're very grateful the Lord has given us these children. The Lord has given me this job. The Lord has given me my abilities. Again, if you so desire, you could put it in this sort of language. I was frail and overwhelmed. I felt the weight of the world crushing upon me. But the Lord came and breathed brains and opportunities into my head. And thus I was able to go forth and be successful. I mean, if you desire, you could probably write better poetry than me. I have little doubt. But do you see the point? David doesn't look at his life and say, I was pretty handy with a sword, you know. (laughs) He says, the Lord has done it. The Lord has provided. Now, here's a little reflection, and this may be untrue, so discount it if you wish. I wonder, and yeah, I wonder if we find it increasingly hard to make such a confession. I just, I wonder that. Because particularly for a crowd such as this, if you are successful in London, you have to work really hard. And you have to be good at your job to succeed in a place like London. And therefore, and the competition gets ever fiercer and ever fiercer, and it's a downturn in the economy, so there are fewer jobs. So if you do well and are successful in this current climate, you really are pretty good. And therefore, culturally, we're, we're, we're sort of pushed into the mold where increasingly we think, it's me, I have done this, I have achieved. It's all very well you saying God has done it, but he hasn't put in the 14 hours a day that I've put in. And so culturally, the pressure is upon us to say, it's all down to me. We just have to remind ourselves, God has given us all we have. And I don't care how successful you are. Were you born in rural Afghanistan 40 years ago, I don't think you'd be having the holidays that you have now or going to the restaurants you do or have the promotions you have. None of us would. 
been born in rural Afghanistan 40 years ago, our lives would have looked pretty different, no matter how brilliant we are. And God has given us the opportunities we have. We need to give thanks to him. The Lord has provided. Can we see history, our own history, from the Lord's perspective as David is able to do here? Give thanks. The other little implication, I think, is trust him. Trust him. David is fully recognizing here power, success, victory. They're not primarily found in military prowess, in his case, or business acumen. They're primarily found by obeying the Lord, by submitting to his reign, by following him, trusting him. I was reminded recently of uh, a delightful little experiment that The Economist magazine did about 20 years ago, 1984, so more than that. Uh, but I reread about it um, a couple of weeks ago. So fun little experiment of uh, 10-year forecasts on a whole variety of economic indicators about what would happen. 16 people, so not a great, not a great sample. But four were finance ministers of uh, major, major economic countries. Four were economic students. Four were corporate chairmen. Four were dustmen. And so they took these guys uh, in 1984. Ten years later, they came back to look at their results. And all of them were pretty poor. All of their projections were, were fairly disappointing. But top, joint top, were the corporate chairman and the dustman. Bottom were the four government finance ministers. Now, okay, not an enormous sample they've taken, but the point they made, the implication they drew, was simply this. It's really hard predicting the future. That was it. That was, that was the point of the research. Predictions are complicated. It's hard to get them right. Now, I read that and thought, yes, well, that's true. Life is complicated. But therefore, trusting the Lord, obviously, that's what we're made to do. If you're a Christian, you know that. That's, that's honouring him. Fail to trust is sin. Obviously, trusting him is a good thing to do. But also, just humanly speaking, that's shrewd. That makes sense. Because he does know the future. So trusting him and honouring him is always the right thing to do. Whereas making your own decisions and guessing what might happen, it's really hard. Really hard to get that right. You're better off trusting him. History that sees the Lord's work. Can we see with those eyes? Praise him, trust him. Second little section, which is uh, is a bit different. The heroes, flick over a page. The heroes, chapter 23, the mighty men. Now back uh, when uh, David was on the run, we're told, 1, 1 Samuel 22, he gathered around 400 men around him in uh, the caves of Adalam uh, when he was on the run from Saul. They became later on his personal guard, his sort of elite, but within them were the mighty men. The mighty men. They were the 30. And there's more than 30 names here. So obviously some died and they got replaced by someone else. But if you were one of the 30 of David's mighty men, you were pretty impressive. And you read their exploits and they are pretty impressive. Joshua uh, Bashabeth fought off 800 men. Eleazar fought the Philistines on his own till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. I mean, this is very impressive. Magnificent fighting exploits. 
So you get the super three in verses 8 to 12. But I just want to focus for a few minutes on the, the unnamed three in verses 13 to 18, 13 to 17. Because we get a little more detail of this story. But it's a very strange story, isn't it? Did you think that when it was read? Verse 13 to 17. David and his men, they're holed up in the caves of Adalam. Not many of them, 400 of them. Saul and the whole army of Israel is looking for them. The Philistines as well, the great enemy of Israel. The Philistines have invaded Israel and conquered large swathes of it. As so David says, verse 15, he longed for water. Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. Now, that wasn't the only well in the whole country. He could quite easily have got a drink of water in one of the springs that in the mountains of the caves of Adalam. It's not so much that he's thirsty per se. When he longs for water from Bethlehem, that's his hometown, which has been invaded and conquered by the Philistines. God had promised him a decade earlier, David, you will be king over all Israel. So David sits there in a cave with 400 men. He's got Saul's army want him. The Philistines are trying to kill him. And he thinks, I'd really like to be back home now, thanks God. I'd like to be back in my hometown drinking, let's modernize it, drinking a beer in my favorite pub. Oh, how I'd love a, whatever it is. Oh, how I'd love a Foster's Budweiser in that pub with my friends. Oh, I'd want to be back there. That's David's sort of lament. That's where I want to be. Now the men here, the three unnamed heroes, they hear this groan, this lament. And wow, do they take it seriously. I mean, verse 16, it's very brief, but you could easily make a two-hour Hollywood uh, action film over verse 16. So the three mighty men broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. Now, that's very brief. Let me just expand on it a little bit. What do they do? They, they break through the Philistine lines at Rephaim. So you've got a garrison there. There's at least about 30 men in a garrison, so they break through there. They trek 12 and a half miles from Adalam to Bethlehem, so they go on a little half marathon. And then they invade and break into another Philistine, Philistine garrison, just the three of them. I mean, probably arrows being shot at them. Obviously men trying to hit them with swords, probably not like that. Um, uh, but um, And one of them, presumably a wineskin, sort of fills up the wineskin. Uh, from the bucket in the well. Two of them are fighting off everyone else. And then they break out. Presumably they're being pursued by the Philistines for another half marathon, 12 and a half miles. They run all the way back to David. This is magnificent. This is well worthy of a film. Heroic action. And they give their water to David. And David says, well, he just pours it out into a puddle on the ground. And you think, uh-oh. What? What are you doing? Verse 16, David refused to drink it. Gosh. Instead he poured it out before the Lord. Two things worth noting before we finish. First, only the Lord is worthy of worship. That's what David is doing here. Verse 16, David pours it out before the Lord. That is, he doesn't just throw it away. 
he offers this water as a drink offering, as a sacrifice before the Lord, and says, Lord, with this water I'm praising you. Or as he says in verse 17, far be it from me, O Lord, to do this. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? He's saying, look, the nameless three, you don't risk your lives for me. You do that for the Lord. So let's honor him with what you've done. David essentially saying to these nameless three, don't, don't be excited about me. Be excited about the God who made me your king. Don't look at me, look at him. And presumably the three, if they rightly understood, wouldn't have been irritated. They'd have been honored. Okay, we've done this for the Lord himself. It's good leadership here from David. Don't look at me, look at the Lord. Now we all have our little heroes be it in sporting arena, business arena, whatever it may be, spiritual arena, people from our past, people that we look up to as our gurus. We all have our little heroes. And they all ought to be saying, don't look at me, look at the Lord. Last month, uh, John Stott had his big memorial service uh, held at St. Paul's Cathedral. Tim Dudley Smith gave the sermon, the address, a couple of times in it. As he he, uh, gave this address of the great man, revered all over the world by so many believers. A couple of times he made the point. As I've been pondering my sermon, John's voice has always been at my elbow saying, not about me, tell them about Jesus. Quite right. Quite right. That's what David is saying here. Only the Lord is worthy of worship. Second thing, last thing. Jesus is worthy of heroism. Jesus is worthy of heroism. These are these last four chapters, chapters 21 to 24, in many ways, by going back into the past, they depict David as the perfect king again in many ways. Not quite, but in many ways. So we're beyond now his fall and his, his mistakes in chapters 9 to 20. And here he's being raised up as, here is God's anointed king, the one who is a shadow, a picture, a foretaste of Jesus Christ. And so when we read this little incident of these men heroically taking risks for Jesus Christ, it is an appropriate model for us of devotion to Jesus Christ. See, verse 15, when David um, speaks, it's not a command. It's not an order. It's not an imperative. It's a sort of vague wish. Oh, I'd love some water from the well at Bethlehem. It's just a vague wish. But these men are so devoted to him, they say, yeah, we'll do that for you. We'll do that. Now, look. Are you and I anywhere near that? This is a model not just of uh, obeying the explicit commands of Jesus in the scripture, but of asking, what else can I do? Anything else? What else can I do? How else can I give my life for you? But before he even asks, offering. It's extraordinary, but normal, appropriate. I was reminded this week of uh, famous words. I don't know if you've heard these before. They were um, written years ago by Howard Guinness. Howard Guinness was the co-founder of the InterVarsity Fellowship, 
which in the UK now, UCCF, globally, IFES, but uh, InterVarsity Fellowship he co-founded back in the 1930s as a fairly young man. And one of the first books that they published, obviously they published thousands of books since then, one of the first was his little book called Sacrifice. And uh, he wrote these words, which um, many have been deeply moved by in the years since. Let me read you a, a selection. Where are the men and women of this generation who will hold their lives cheap and be faithful even unto death? Where are those who will lose their lives for Christ's sake, flinging them away for love of him? Where are those who will live dangerously and be reckless in his service? Where are his lovers, those who love him and the souls of men more than their own reputations or comfort or very life? Where are the men who say no to self, who take up Christ's cross to bear it after him, who are willing to be nailed to it in college or office or home or mission field, who are willing, if need be, to bleed, to suffer and to die on it? Where are the men who have seen the king in his beauty, by whom henceforth all else is counted but rubbish, that they may know Christ? Where are the adventurers, the explorers, the buccaneers for God, who count one human soul of far greater value than the rise or fall of an empire? Where are the men who are willing to pay the price of this vision? Where are the men of prayer? Where are God's men in this day of God's power? Where are the men like these nameless three? Who see their king and say, yeah, he's worthy of anything. Where are the men and women in this generation? He asked that in 1939. Where are the men and women? It's just as relevant today. It's deeply challenging, isn't it? Deeply challenging. I find myself rebuked by that. Do you see his value? Do you see the value of Jesus Christ? The King and God who has made you, who has given you every opportunity in life, given you all that you have. Do you look at him and think, yeah, he's useful? Or do you think he is my King and I would do anything for him? What would you have me do, Lord? What would you have me do today? Any whim that I can answer? Do you see his value? And if we don't, then we do need to immerse ourselves in these truths, the truth of chapter 22. Look at our own history and recognize that all that we have is given from the Lord. All that we have. We have nothing that he has not given to us. In chapter 23, supremely, we need to see that before we can do anything for him, he has heroically saved you if you're a Christian. See, these unnamed men, they're magnificent. They broke through Philistine, li- Philistine lines. They risked their lives to get David water. Jesus, somewhat more significantly, broke through from heaven to earth. Didn't just risk his life. Willingly, knowingly gave his life, not for water, but for eternity for you and for me. Do you see his value? This chapter, these men, they're magnificent. They're nothing compared to the heroism of Jesus Christ. And when we see his value, oh, then we can do things for him. Let's pray together. David said, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and my salvation. 
Father, thank you as we read of these exploits of these magnificent men. They are nothing compared to how heroically Jesus gave his life for us. And we pray that we would understand that deeply so that we would be the men and women of this generation who think lightly of ourselves but think very highly of him. We do ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.